0: Welcome to BIB Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver Newsroom. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. And of course, we have some new regulations now, a second wave of regulations in the cannabis space. The kind of cannabis 2.0 era is going to begin later this year. And with that will come a range of new products, edibles, particularly beverages on the horizon. We want to take a look at what the implications are for the consumer, for the business. And of course, we always turn to Dan Sutton. Who heads Tantalus Labs for his insight and in all this? He's been really coming in and in here for a couple of years now, walking us through. And this is actually a, a pretty, this is not a walkthrough, this is actually a bit of a run through. They, uh, there are some big things about to happen in this space. What do you think?
1: Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a super, super exciting time for cannabis and the cannabis industry, uh, in Canada. I think with these new regs affording users the opportunity to not just smoke their cannabis or consume it in ingestible oils, we're going to see a diversity of new use cases which will allow users to more effectively modulate their doses, more effectively understand what's going into their bodies, uh, and ultimately create use cases that will interest hopefully a a widening diversity of responsible cannabis use.
0: Yeah, and and I've heard this discussed in a very interesting way, which is that uh, some of the apprehension that people might have about using cannabis is that they're not quite clear on what smoking will do, smoking a particular brand will do to their, to their heads uh, at the moment, um, that they want the same kind of certainty that comes with knowing, say, what a glass of wine is going to do to you. So does this get us closer to that certainty phase, do you think?
1: Uh, I think it will do it will do a lot. And Certainly, when you have the backing of quality assurance and lab testing that is validating the potency of edibles, beverages, and ultimately concentrates as well, you're far more likely to benefit from those same implications that we see on flower today. Mm -hmm. However, in flowered cannabis, uh, it is not necessarily true that the most potent THC numbers always equate to the most inebriating experiences. Uh Especially in the kind of middle potencies in the 10 to 15% range, there's a whole other entourage of compounds, lower order cannabinoids, terpenes, et cetera, that affect the psychoactive impact. Uh, and in especially edibles, that's, that's far less likely to be true.
0: You can quantify the impact better. There's more, it, I don't know. I mean, are we really looking for predictability in the substances, right?
1: We absolutely are. And so in edibles, I would say 95% of the edibles market upcoming in Canada for the next few years is very likely to focus on individual commoditized compounds, essentially THC, delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol. This is the substance that is likely to elicit a psychoactive effect. And so It is still subjective, different people with different body chemistries, what time of the day you take it, different physiologies, they will have different impacts uh, associated with different, different uh, quantities of THC that they consume, but at least they will be able to benchmark their own use. Yeah. So they'll start slow, go, go start low and go slow test out a small dose of edibles at first, and then be able to upregulate from there.
0: Um, I think people are likely naive about this, but there are bound to be some experiments in this where people, in fact, ingest edibles, nothing happens. And half hour later, you're like, well, I better try some more. I, like Obviously, the dosage is not high enough. I'm, I better chew a few more things. It, is there a little bit of a consumer education thing that has to happen?
1: Absolutely. So there are, I would say the majority of products suspend THC in a lipid. Sometimes that lipid comes from a plant. Sometimes that lipid comes from a, an ingestible oil and lipids fats take longer to digest. Yeah. And so that's really the core of the reason why edible uptake can be so long. Now there's a new class of products, especially as inputs to edibles that allow for quick uptake.
0: Fast acting drugs, exactly. just like, just like medicine.
1: They've, they've essentially micronized the THC to such a small granularity that it's easier to for the body to absorb. And these products tout that they will be able to have onset of effects within sort of 5 to 15 minutes. Hmm. And the duration of effects is also a lot shorter as your body processes it, more like sort of two hours yeah. instead of five or six that can happen with a heavy dose of edibles.
0: So this is getting into the realm of alcohol, right? Where um, – A drink is fast acting, not necessarily of great duration, and you can kind of budget your night or your day or whatever accordingly. Um, Are the beverages going to be fast acting too?
1: Uh, there is beverage technology that allows for fast-acting uptake, which does, once again, more effectively mimic alcohol in its use case, or at least in its active use case. I think what I'm really excited about is that the impacts of cannabis on your system for the days after that you've consumed the product uh, is apparently a lot less impactful than alcohol. So you wow. can essentially have a social lubricant, a fun, sessionable beverage. You can have multiple of those beverages over the course of an evening, as long as you understand your dosing effectively and then uh, you're not going to get the same hangover that you would have from an alcoholic beverage. You're not going to be
0: groggy the next day.
1: <laughs> you may be groggy the next day depending on person to person but in terms of the way your liver your kidneys and the rest of your body processes right. the alcohol molecule mm-hmm. uh, the pathways are not the same for
0: cannabis. Yeah so we're now getting into this era Dan I think where it's you know um, I'll use the apples to apples analogy in this one where the beverages will be stacked up against the alcohol beverages and all that. Um, Are the regulations about the same? Are the, you know, is the marketing about the same? What, where will be the similarities and differences?
1: Yeah, I think that we see a lot more flexibility in alcohol marketing than we do in cannabis marketing today, especially around cannabis beverages, and there have been some new entrants into the cannabis beverage market that have cried foul. They've said, this is unfair. We want to be able to market this product alongside of alcohol, and we want to be able to use our traditional alcohol marketing strategies for the marketing of this They won't be beverage. the
0: world's most interesting man <laughs> uh, in, I, in that space.
1: I think if the world's most interesting man exists, he probably does consume cannabis. Uh, <laughs> but we won't be seeing him as a marketer. You're so fan. biased on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> fully biased.
0: Do you drink at all?
1: Uh, I actually do not consume alcohol myself.
0: yeah. I enjoy
1: <laughs> I enjoy wine culture and beer culture, but uh, part of the entrepreneurial commitment to actually making your your Sundays pr- productive, alcohol has not been a part of my life for about seven okay. years.
0: fair enough. But so, but let's talk a bit about these regulations and what the impediments are. I mean, very obviously, the first phase of cannabis legalization in this country was, I mean, it, like it's it's like the most aggressive of the tobacco marketing. Um, are we going to see somewhat the same situation stepping forward? Or or do you sense that the government is beginning to relent a little bit, understand that it was a bit ham-fisted here at the start?
1: So it appears as though we are going to see analogous regulations to tobacco and to the version one of cannabis legalization on all of these new value-added products. And uh, that is obviously concerning for some people that are into You know, used to more traditional marketing techniques and strategies. Uh, I don't think we see any evidence that the government is going to loosen up these regs in the immediate or short term future. But I think the the attitude of beverage providers, cannabis beverage providers, you know, lobbying or crying foul or rallying against these regulations is actually the not the right strategy. Oh. No. If we wanna see more reasonable regulations or regulations that more effectively reflect the risk or lack of risk associated with well-dosed, effective, quality-assured cannabis products, I think the key that we need is to use small populations of test cases. We basically say, let's run this for six months, let's run it for 12 months, and let's look at emergency room visits. Let's look at cost to public health. Let's look at the actual impacts that cannabis beverages can have, and if we quantify those impacts and the data demonstrates that this is not as significantly as impactful as alcohol or is not causing ultimately broad widespread social harm, that is the time when you then reform the regulations. So not you, in you have
0: kind of an evidence-based argument about societal impact as more of a main, means by which you gain greater agency to market your products. About right about right? Yeah.
1: That that does that does seem reasonable. And I, I think we need to reflect on the reality that from a public health and safety perspective, a lot of policy academics, a lot of policymakers in government, they look at alcohol marketing as failed policy. This huh. has been grandfathered in, you know, over the course of, of fifty years or whatever the market. Why? Because era. it's
0: still harming people?
1: It, it absolutely is from a quantifiable public health and safety perspective. Right. The cost on our healthcare system associated with overconsumption of alcohol is substantial. Yeah. You know, Hundreds of thousands of people in North America will die from alcohol-related complications this year. These are statistics that we can't point to for cannabis today. And I think once we have a little back data, we'll be able to look back at legalization and say this did not cause panic in the streets. This did not cause broad widespread pandemic social pandemic uh, and so I think that that's the, the steady approach is a very Canadian approach um, but certainly by limiting marketing as well as limiting maximum dosages the Canadian government is doing their job to effectively mitigate the risk associated with these okay new but classes.
0: but I also look at the uh, the billions of dollars in market capitalization that a lot of these players have in this situation uh, and if they're being somewhat impeded, from getting toward profitability, uh, how long can you sustain yourselves in this space without, you know, w- without a collapse?
1: Well, I I can assure you that Health Canada has a very it's very low on their priority list to protect public company investors.
0: Right, but but the, the fact is that uh, that essentially the the notification of society about the arrival of legalization certainly. Got a lot of people very excited from an investment standpoint, from an agricultural standpoint, scientific standpoint. Everything was, was, you know, going full guns for a while there. And then it slows down. It, it, it crawls a little bit. The black market stays quite active. Uh, I mean, you know, you and I've talked about the illegal dispensaries and how they're, they've been cash grabs like crazy. But, but, you know, now you've got this situation where there's, there's a real hangout here of, Billions of dollars in investment—that it, it's almost like Amazon being prevented from delivering, you know.
1: That's fair, and the the economic implications of cannabis, I think, in terms of generating revenue, ergo paying taxes, should be a priority in all of these conversations. But people getting overly excited about rapid movement that was never promised from the government to mm-hmm. then the, to then invest in these companies as though they're going to be the next slice bread. Yeah. You know, I run a cannabis company. I obviously believe strongly that there are great business fundamentals in this industry. There will be companies, multi-billion dollar, revenue-driven, fundamentally valued companies, uh, globalized companies that come from Canadian origins. But... The concession is that it's going to take time. It's going to take years and years, and that's the Canadian model. So the early
0: investors got too excited.
1: Well, I I would say that there have been various companies that have been substantially overbought. There are companies that have allowed that valuation to shape their perception of their core value, Mm -hmm. which is then have them overspending, creating these crazy burn rates that in many cases will be unsustainable. There will be titans that fall. There will be companies that do not succeed, and that is the nature of any nascent industry.
0: Sure, and there are going to be some shareholder – rebellions, I think, before terribly long, right?
1: We're seeing them already today. I mean, we've seen them historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, when shareholders do not jive with the, the vision of management, it's usually management that doesn't have long to go.
0: Yeah, but management may have the vision, but if somehow there is a kind of an institutional impediment around regulations and marketing and and, and all of that, I mean, where do you pin who, – who do you pin the blame on? Yeah. The
1: government has the responsibility to – enact the will of the people. And ultimately, if we as Canadians look at our ability, capacity to responsibly consume cannabis and say, you know what, we're sovereign adults, we've got this, this doesn't seem to be hugely impactful, the risk profiles are demonstrably low, Hmm. then the government will respond to the demand from its citizens. Not necessarily the citizens that are exclusively invested in public markets, um, but I think we can all take a good, educated look at this in a year and two years' time and say, has cannabis caused the social crisis that that its uh, detractors suggested that it has. My personal opinion, spoiler alert, is that it probably won't. Mm. Um, but mm. once we quantify that data, that's going to be the best tool to create evidence-based policy around cannabis marketing.
0: Okay. So there there are twin rails in all of this. There's the political rail and the government rail. And the government rail through Health Canada has, has effected these new regulations that Seem to be setting ourselves up for the arrival of edibles and maybe beverages, but certainly edibles by December, maybe mm-hmm. somewhere in there, you know, mid mid November, somewhere December. In that space, in, in best order.
1: case policy outcomes, it is feasible that products could be available yeah. in December.
0: A- anything that you're seeing or hearing um, in the run up to a federal election on the political side, the political rail, that suggests that some of this may may you know be. Affected, uh, you know.
1: It's interesting because we don't really see any partisanship around cannabis. There hasn't really been much messaging from the Liberal Party, the federal Liberal Party, saying, "Oh, the the Conservatives are going to take this away from you in mm-hmm. Canada." And once again, uh, Andrew Shears, Conservatives, haven't said much except for you know there was a, a minor statement maybe a year ago that was like, "Well, just let it ride."
0: Yeah, so- I mean, very clearly, Andrew Shear was uncomfortable with the legalization process. He spoke out against it at the time but I I have the sense that his handlers have said this is this is a third rail politically don't touch this one sure. like, why why do it you know
1: yeah I mean it is hard to speculate and I think we'll probably see cards played pretty close to everyone's chests but
0: there's it, also a lot of conservatives I think invested in this business
1: that's very true and you know Conservatives in Canada seem to have a bit of a less bend of social moralism than we might see in the United States, where people just have to be morally opposed to any and all drug use. Uh, But it's it's pretty clear that Canadians wanted legalization. They continue to want legalization. You know, legalization. As a success or not a success, but rather as an incremental growth opportunity for for Canadians and ultimately a, a liberalization of the sovereignty of the individual to choose what they want to do. These are all highly Canadian ideals, I think, on, on any side of the political aisle.
0: One last thing I want to broach with you, and and I've, I've heard this again many times, which is the concern that people have about how much leadership Canada can really affect for how long? Uh, because other countries are probably coming in uh, pretty quickly here in the next year, two years, three years. Um, is is the go slow approach going to lose Canada's advantage in this space that we might might have now?
1: I think competition is inevitable. I think that we are going to see more and more globalization of cannabis marketplaces, which therefore should imply globalization of cannabis production techniques and distribution. Um, Canada's Canada's advantage is that all of the systems in the Canadian licensed producer realm uh, all they all come from quality assurance and security focus. So at Tantalus Labs, we really pride ourselves on our repeatability. We cultivate cannabis that our users deem is of high value, it's of high quality, and we have a system that can repeatably produce that through process and systematization uh, over time and ultimately in any jurisdiction in the world. I also happen to believe that in British Columbia specifically, maybe even the Fraser Valley or Southern Vancouver Island, the Southern Kootenai regions, we are going to start to see regional success, almost Appalachian-style success, that will curry favor across the rest of the globe. I mean, you can go to any country in the world. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Any any country in the world and ask about BC Bud and they'll know exactly what you're talking about. So there is a substantial advantage just that we've had five years of understanding how to do this in a consistent way without the use of pesticides. But you don't feel we're squandering it in
0: the way that we're moving, the pace we're moving?
1: I think that any country that wants – to emulate a system where you can repeatably produce safe cannabis should be leveraging Canadian IP. And in Mm. that, in that scenario, we have a substantial advantage Mm. uh, and we don't necessarily, I think the real the real problem with the argument that, oh, the United States will move faster or California moves faster, is that California may have moved faster, but they've also crashed through the brambles on a whole bunch of problems okay. around pesticides, around regulations that have not effectively accounted for overuse of edibles and all these other things. And so when you brought, buy a product in California, you're not entirely guaranteed that that product is going to be as safe as a Canadian product. So we'll see. I think if the world prioritizes safe, quality, assured cannabis consumption then Canada maintains its advantage. But yes, we do need to foster the economic growth of this industry, and we do need to consider that in policy initiatives as well.
0: Yeah. I think the next few months are going to be a very interesting test of just how fast we can go and, and how effective we'll be. Dan, always good to have you here. Thanks a lot for coming in. Thanks, Kirk. Dan Sutton of Tantalus Labs. I'm Kirk LePoint. Thanks a lot for listening to BIV today. We'll see you next time.